Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is The Skip Bayless Show, episode 49. This is the un-undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during the two and a half hour debate show that is undisputed. Today, I will tell you why. If my Dallas Cowboys win this year's Super Bowl, I know it's a big if, but if they do, it will be by far the greatest moment of my cowboy loving life. I will tell you also why Brett the Fret Maher, he's back, will probably be the reason my Cowboys do not win this year's Super Bowl. I will also tell you why LeBron James at this moment astounds and continues to baffle me. And I will tell you Brady haters why Tom Brady will return to haunt you next year and probably the year after. He ain't done yet. He ain't washed. And finally, I will tell you why Cowboys at 49er playoff games, many of which I covered, have consistently been the most memorable moments of my sports watching life. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I start with a question from the audience, from you, from Robert from Arlington, Texas, who asks, finish the sentence. If the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, I will dot, dot, dot. Robert, I will stand up in the middle of the undisputed debate desk and I will dance. I will dance for a long, long time on live television because I will be happier than I've ever been in my sports watching life. And I will make it very difficult on the many cowboy haters out there who have ridiculed me over the last 27 years, starting with the man across the debate desk for me, Shannon Sharp, I will unleash. Now, before I proceed, you might ask, 
am, am I jinxing myself once again by, by even acknowledging the possibility that my Cowboys could, could actually win the franchise's first Super Bowl since January of 1996? No, I'm not. I told you sitting right here in this chair to this microphone seven weeks ago that this team, this Dallas Cowboy team has genuinely explosive talent. I'm talking about true firepower and star power, Super Bowl ingredients, all of which you saw on display on Monday night in Tampa against the GOAT. Was that not a tour de force? Was that not a potential Super Bowl statement? And yet I remind you, my team did a 40 to three number on the Vikings at Minnesota. 33 to nothing in the fourth quarter on Indy at Jerry World. 40 points we hung on, 40 points we hung on, along with four takeaways against Philly at Jerry World. We did beat the Bengals. We swept the Giants. We beat the Lions 21 to nothing in the second half at Jerry World. Heck, I, I was even inspired that my Cowboys led at Lambeau against Aaron freaking Rodgers 28 to 14 through three quarters. I was very impressed that we led Jacksonville 27 to 10 late in the third quarter. Yes, 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 I know. We blew both leads. We lost both games in overtime. But even in those overtimes, my team was in commanding position to win both overtimes. Commanding. Did not finish. I got it. But we got this. And yes, 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 you can argue back that we took our foot off the gas against Houston and then at Tennessee, and God knows we did especially at Washington in that season ender that I threw straight in the trash almost along with my Dak Prescott jersey. I almost did it again, but I refrained, fortunately, and thank you, Dak, for last Monday night. My team suffered are-we-there-yet syndrome. My team was pointing toward nothing but the first playoff game. My team was looking way ahead but as C.D. Lamb so eloquently said, we will flip the switch. And did they ever at Tampa Super Bowl showcase? Whew. Did we not send a message last Monday night? We are that good. Yet, yes, yes, yes. Now the degree of difficulty ratches up uh, even higher than the Golden Gate Bridge. Now it's on to San Francisco. And you can argue back to me that my only real hope against the Niners out there is that they're having to play a rookie quarterback who, of course, has looked like a young Joe Montana going 6-0 in his first six starts for those Niners. But he is a rookie. And my defense did lead the NFL in takeaways. And I do have a force of nature named My O Micah Parsons 11 from heaven 
And I do believe I have the NFL's best defensive coordinator in Dan Quinn, though not much longer because he will soon be a head coach. And of course, I do have on offense CeeDee Lamb, as I just mentioned, and Tony P, as in Pollard, who have emerged as stars. I will take CD over Debo. I will take Tony Pollard over C-Mac. I'm not saying I'll take Dalton Schultz over that tight end in San Francisco, you know, the kittle I speak of. But Dalton Schultz has become an unsung star for my team, and he's become a security blanket for my quarterback, dare I say. And my quarterback, dare I say, is now protected by three Hall of Famers, three Hall of Fame-bound players in my offensive line, along with a rookie named Tyler Smith, who belongs in some sort of Rookie of the Year, at least Offensive Rookie of the Year conversation, because he has been quietly great. Way to go, Jerry. Scored again on another draft pick. I do have a Dak Prescott who just played the game of his life at GOAT. And if he's able to replicate that at San Francisco, could, could my team go on to win the Super Bowl? Yes, it could. Sure it could. And why would that mean so much more to me than any of the previous five Super Bowls that my Cowboys have won because of the drought. It has been 27 long, hard years since my team won its last Super Bowl. 27 years. Over that span, my team has gone 5-11 and 11 in the postseason. 5-11 and 11 over that span. That is the worst winning percentage of any NFL team that has played at least 12 playoff games. Think about that. The worst winning per percentage after we dominated the 1990s. Huh. That is shameful. That is embarrassing. That is humiliating. And even worse, I've spent much of the last 27 years during that drought on live national TV, having to defend my Dallas Cowboys against the onslaught of Stephen A's and Shannon Sharps. Onslaught, day after day after day, all I've heard is, hey, how can they still be America's team when they haven't won a Super Bowl since the 1995 season? All I've heard is, they're an accident waiting to happen. All I've heard is, you know, inevitably, the Cowboys will do Cowboy things. How many times have I heard, Jerry Jones is more interested in promoting the team than in winning football games and mostly in promoting himself. How many times have I heard that? Sometimes I've said it myself. I do pride myself on being an objective Cowboy fan. Maybe oxymoronic, but it applies to me. I am now so sick and so tired of defending myself and my team against the scathing vitriol, the onslaught of cowboy haters. 27 years worth. Man. 
would I ever let them all have it, have it right between the eyes for days on end if my Cowboys did take off and win this year's Super Bowl? Would I ever, with all the passionate fury that I pound the debate desk and I shout, how fuck them Cowboys after they win? That's what you would get from me day after day after day if they won this year's Super Bowl. I'm actually still a little hoarse <laughs> from screaming, how about them Cowboys? In Tuesday's show open, which went on to how about that Dak Prescott and how about that Micah Parsons and how about that first road playoff win in 30 years? I'm not going to scream them again. I'll lose my voice before this podcast is over. But please understand, if you would, how much I have been through. Remember, I, I attended my first Cowboys game when I was 10 years old. It was St. Louis Cardinals at Dallas Cowboys in the old Cotton Bowl. I was smitten. I was hooked. Those... Those uniforms with the stars on the shoulders and the helmets and the up, they, they had me by the eyeballs. And right away, Tom Landry's expansion team in those days, it began to rise and shine. Right on schedule in my fandom, they went four and 10 the next year, then they went five, eight, and one. You could see it coming. They went seven and seven. And all of a sudden, right on schedule. This, this was fun for me as a kid. They went 10-3-1 in 1967. And they wound up hosting the NFC Championship game in Dallas against Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers to not only win the NFL Championship, it wasn't the NFC at that point, it was the NFL Championship, but they would have been able to represent the NFL in Super Bowl number one against the Kansas City Chiefs. Unfortunately, the Packers did win that day, and they deserved to win, but it was 34-27 to 27 over Don Meredith and my Dallas Cowboys. It was a great game. It was more of a shootout. It was more of an offensive than defensive battle. But they won deservedly, and they got to play the Chiefs in Super Bowl I. But we came right back the next year to play the NFL championship game at Lambeau. I shudder when I even think about it. Remember the Ice Bowl? Again, we were playing for the right to represent the NFL in Super Bowl II. That went against the Oakland Raiders. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the toughest NFL loss I have ever suffered. We were better than those Packers, but we were not better than a minus 48-degree windshield. We just weren't. We were far more explosive than those Packers, but not on the literally frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. You might or might not remember their quarterback, Bart Starr, 16 seconds left, sneaked it home because my defensive lineman, starting with Jethro Pugh, slipped and slid backward on the ice. Green Bay sneaked into the night with a 21-17 win. And I was devastated. I was gut-punched. I had to watch that game 
in my dad's hospital room at the VA hospital. He was in again for alcohol rehab. He mostly slept through that ice ball, which pretty much described my relationship with my dad. But my cowboys didn't go away. They continued to rise and shine. 12 and 2 the next year, 11, 2 and 1 the next year. And before I knew it, they were playing the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl V. They were leading 13 to 3 going into the fourth quarter and losing it 16 to 13 on a 32 yard walk off field goal by Jim O'Brien, who might have been the last of the straight on toe first kickers. I wasn't nearly as torn up by that loss as I was by the Ice Bowl loss because. I'm sorry, I just never quite trusted my quarterback at that moment, Craig Morton, who would go on to Denver and we would wreak revenge on him when he played for Denver in a Super Bowl. But my Cowboys bounced right back the following year to win a Super Bowl. That would have been six, but that was with Roger Staubach at quarterback, my all-time favorite Cowboy, Roger the Dodger, Captain America, Heisman winner at Navy, Vietnam veteran, came back to play in the NFL at age 28. I would come to know Roger very well in my days of covering the Dallas Cowboys. But Roger's team dominated Don Shula's Dolphins that day in New Orleans. It was 24-3. And that was the happiest I'd ever been in my Dallas Cowboy fandom up to that point. That was the happiest because at that point, I was still just a college kid. I was just, I was a freshman at Vanderbilt, had no media responsibilities, no columns or books to write off that game or that season, no TV or radio shows to do after that game. It was just pure cowboy loving joy. No strings attached. And just five years after that, I got to actually cover my first Super Bowl. First year out of college working for the Miami Herald. At the Orange Bowl, Steelers won, beat us 21 to 17. That was Super Bowl 10. I was assigned to Tom Landry in the loser's locker room, so I had to keep my emotions out of it. But two years later, I covered another Super Bowl. Cowboys crushing the Orange Crush, the Broncos. This was in New Orleans. It was 27 to 10. I was happy, but I had to swallow it. I had to control it because I was covering it for the Los Angeles Times. Then two years later, I was the lead columnist for the Dallas Morning News at the Orange Bowl. Steelers and Terry Bradshaw, our man here at Fox, they got us again. Terry was the MVP of that game. It was 35 to 31. As great a collection of football talent on one field as I have ever seen. Doesn't get any better than that. Then a year later, Roger the Dodger retired, mostly because of concussions in part because Tom Landry wouldn't let him call the plays. Danny White took over 
He was never Roger, but he still took us to three straight NFC Championship games in Philly, in San Francisco, in Washington. Then a bit of a drought ensued as Landry's Rome fell to the back of the 80s. But here came Jimmy, here came Jerry, and that Super Bowl arrow quickly pointed north. And again, I, I wrote a whole book about that first breakthrough season in 1992. And they turned right around and won it all again in 93. And on that day of the second straight Super Bowl win, the day after actually, we launched the first all sports radio station in Dallas, Texas called The Ticket, and I was the first voice that was heard. So I did have my media responsibilities, and I had to govern my emotions. But the point is, was I ever spoiled as a Dallas Cowboy fan over those first 35 years that I loved this football team? Was I ever spoiled? Think about this. I had two NFL championship games. I had eight Super Bowls, I had five Lombardies, I had too many NFC Championship games to count, I had Don Meredith, I had Roger Staubach, I had Troy Aikman. That's what you call America's team. That January night, after that final Super Bowl victory, in Tempe, part of Phoenix, obviously, at old Sun Devil Stadium. I actually was allowed to attend the Cowboy Victory Party in a giant tent behind their hotel in Scottsdale after I got a big bear hug from Barry Switzer, whom I know very well. I could not have imagined that 27 long years later, I'd be sitting here talking to you about how it's been 27 years since my Dallas Cowboys won a Super Bowl. 27 years. But here I sit, battered, but not broken. This year, I'm not just wishing and hoping. I'm not delusionally dreaming. This year, we have a real live shot. A talent-laden shot at winning it all. Can we win at Niners? You betcha. Could we win at Eagles? You better believe we could win at Eagles. Yet, I will admit to you right here, right now, I've been burned so many times over these last 27 years. I've been blindsided, and flummoxed, and thunderstruck, and gobsmacked so many times that my demon-fighting psyche has sort of strayed this last couple of days into imagining my worst nightmare. That would be, we win at Niners, Giants upset Eagles in Philly, we get the NFC Championship game at Jerry World, our first, obviously, in 27 years, an NFC Championship game at home, and then, nightmare of nightmares, we fail to win a third game this season against those Giants. That would be my worst nightmare. And I have 
I have pondered the possibility because I can't help myself after 27 years. We do do cowboy things occasionally. I, I could just see that game, Dak throwing three interceptions, Daniel Jones throwing three touchdown passes and throwing for 300. And then I have to go in on Monday morning, face Shannon Sharp's cowboy hating ridicule. But no, 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 not this time. We are too legit. This time, if we win it all, hell hath no fury like a lifelong diehard cowboy fan scorned for 27 years. Hell hath no fury like that. I will unleash. Book it. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Bayless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Bayless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Bayless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now... A quick and painful callback to two episodes back, episode 47 of this podcast, which I opened with a scathing monologue about how much I despise the silly abomination that is kicking in the great sport of football. Kicking. Kick it out. I'm going to ask it one more time. How did we ever start allowing little soccer-style kickers who do not play football, could not play football, to trot onto the field and decide games pitting ultimate warriors by trying to kick an oblong ball through the giant H known as goalposts with uprights, uprongs. I warned you that your kicker for your playoff team just might say up yours by mentally going south just when you least expected it and gagging away your season. Little did I realize I was actually forecasting my own doom. My kicker my Dallas Cowboy kicker, Brett Maher, has turned right back into, right on schedule, Brett the Fret, as I used to call him. My Cowboys 
played their game of the year at Tampa. Heck, they played the game of the century for my Dallas Cowboys, only to have it mucked up by a kicker who missed his first four extra points. That after he had missed the last one at Washington in that disaster of a debacle. So I watched him miss five straight extra points on Monday night. And now with a short week, obviously, leading up to an even bigger game at San Francisco, I am stuck with a kicker who has gone Looney Tunes on me right on schedule. You know, there's a reason that Brett Maher was not drafted out of Nebraska. There's a reason that the Dallas Cowboys have already cut him twice and is now, he's now a candidate to be cut three times, but not this week. There's a reason NFL teams have cut Brett Maher nine different times. Think about that. Nine different times he's been let go by NFL teams. There's also a reason he has already been cut four times in his career by Canadian Football League teams. What? Oh. Most kickers just suddenly, inexplicably, just lose it, unless you're Justin Tucker or Vinatieri. They lose it, and they just can't get it back until they're recycled into another place in time. Brett the fret has just lost it. And now I have to sweat on Sunday evening with his every swing of the leg that he somehow avoids being the reason we lose. This, once again, will be wildly exciting for all the wrong reasons. That's what I hate about place kicking. I'm almost certain now that my kicker will kick me right in the, let's say, stomach. I, I hark back to one of my favorite Shakespeare lines from Richard III. You might or might not know it, but Richard's out on the battlefield He's losing. He's lost his horse. And he cries out in anguish, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. And now I cry out in anguish, a kicker, a kicker, my kingdom for a kicker. It has come to this. Back to your questions. This is Horace from Richmond, Virginia. Is there a sporting event on your bucket list to attend? Huh. Never been asked that one, Horace. Honestly, there is not. I have been blessed. I have been there and done it all. My bucket runneth over. 
I covered my first Super Bowl, as I mentioned earlier, my first year out of college. And I proceeded to cover 29 in a row before I left the newspaper business back in 2004. 29 straight. In my 18 years on television, I've, I've hit and missed, probably attended 10 more Super Bowls. So we are, because it's on Fox, going to this year's Super Bowl in Phoenix, which will make me around 40 Super Bowls that I have attended. A lot of Super Bowls. For 17 years that I worked in Dallas, I attended every Dallas Cowboy preseason game, every regular season game, and every, obviously, playoff game. Every one of them I attended. Every one of them. I covered many World Series, many spring trainings, many Final Fours, many NBA Finals. I covered Summer Olympics. I covered Winter Olympics. I covered several Indy 500s. I covered, while in the newspaper business, 26 straight Masters. 26 straight. I loved all 26. I have covered many U.S. Open golf tournaments, several PGA golf tournaments, and several British Opens. I've covered the U.S. Open tennis tournament. I've covered Wimbledon several times. I've covered several World Cups. I must admit, I, I get a little fatigued, as in happily fatigued, just recounting all this to you, but no, Horace, nothing left on the bucket list. It is now my honor to share all of this experience with you every day on Undisputed and every week on this podcast. Nikki from New York asks, what is the worst loss you have ever experienced as a sports fan? Again, as I mentioned earlier, the Ice Bowl was my worst NFL loss. My worst baseball loss came way back in 1968 when my St. Louis Cardinals that I grew up loving, I don't know how, but they lost game seven in Detroit as my all-time favorite player, Bob Gibson, somehow got impossibly outdueled by Mickey Lolich in a game seven. That was my worst baseball loss, but my worst overall loss, it's not even close. It rises ignominiously over all the rest. That was game six of the 2013 NBA Finals in Miami. I was there. LeBron James turned it over three times in the last three minutes of that game and twice in the last one minute of that game. Just unraveled. My Spurs were up five points with 23 seconds remaining. With 19.4 left, Kawhi Leonard missed the first free throw. They could have iced it, did make the second one to put my San Antonio Spurs up three. 
Love the Spurs since the 80s. Up four, we almost certainly win it. But we were up three. And LeBron LeBricked the potential tying three. Long rebound, tracked down by Chris Bosh. Don't know why Tim Duncan wasn't in the game, but he wasn't. Bosh deftly kicked it to Ray Allen in the corner. He somehow managed to get both feet behind the three-point line in that short corner. And he ripped that three as clean as you can rip it, and he ripped my heart right out of my body. Ray Allen saved LeBron's legacy. LeBron should be three and seven in finals. But no, Ray Allen was Jesus Shuttlesworth. Thank you, Ray. I'll never forget it. Now, speaking of LeBron, a quick word about the most interesting man in all of sports, LeBron Ramon James. When this man turned 38 years of age back on December 30th, in NBA year number 20, in Atlanta that night, he went on a scoring tear, the likes of which we have never seen at this stage and age. Lord have mercy. Seven games since December 30th, LeBron has averaged 37 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists. That is impossibly all-time great. Over those seven games, the 37 leads the league in scoring. And obviously, LeBron is well on his way to soon passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to become the greatest scorer of all time in this league. Yet, if I may, this is what hits me like a full-speed charging foul. Despite all this, LeBron's Lakers have hovered around 13th out of the 15 teams in the Western Conference. That, that's just impossibly bad. 13th? Four or five games under 500. After LeBron said the other night after losing at home to Philly, we're playing good basketball, we're just not winning games. Precisely. Lakers rarely get blown out. Rarely do they blow anybody out. The Lakers play lots and lots and lots of close games, which of course can be LeBron's worst nightmare. As we all know, LeBron hasn't had Anthony Davis for a while. But even with AD, the Lakers lost a lot of close games that I thought they were going to win, should have won. And that's because the Lakers don't have a closer. So wait a second. LeBron at 38 is scoring like an MVP. He's climbing into the MVP discussion. But the Lakers keep losing close games? This cannot be. Allow me to interject here and encourage you 
to turn off this podcast if you so choose. If you're one of LeBron's blind witnesses, I I encourage you to disqualify and dismiss everything I'm about to say. Yeah, dismiss me as just another LeBron hater, and I'll say, God bless you. That is your right. I understand. You want to drift blissfully into that warm glow of your LeBron love while locking closed your eyes and locking closed your ears to any truth about LeBron James. I am not a LeBron hater, but I am a truth teller. And I'm here to tell you, if you want to listen, if you want to see that as great as he has been this season, he is the biggest reason this team failed to win, I don't know, five or six games, maybe more than that. I realize the truth hurts, but LeBron does not have the closer gene. I used to say he didn't have the clutch gene, but now it runs much different. It it runs much deeper, this Achilles feel of LeBron's. It's actually no closer gene now at this stage of his career. The Lakers simply lack a closer. I think Russell Westbrook tries and mostly unravels and fails. He tries too hard. But just allow me to count the ways here because, first of all, Think about this. The man who will soon pass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is is once again a lousy three-point shooter. Always has been, but he's much worse now. Lately, he has sunk to the very bottom of the NBA. It's around 154 players qualified, and, and he's plunged beneath 30%. Sometimes he's last, sometimes he's second to last, maybe third to last. But in fact, during the seven-game tear of his, 37 points a game, he's shooting 27% from three. That's impossibly awful. So he really can't shoot, but he's going to become the leading scorer. How can that be? Well, I, I tell you again and again on Undisputed, he is the greatest driver of the basketball we have ever seen. He's developed a passable mid-range game. But mostly, he just drives it and bully balls this league at age 38 like no player ever has. He is still unstoppable when he attacks. Unstoppable. Nobody. Nobody can deal with him. Kids, middle-aged players, nobody can stop him. But... I'm sorry, I just have to do this. I'm going to plunge through this very quickly. Let me count the ways. Let's go back to Monday. You might remember the game. I watch every dribble of every LeBron game. This is November 28th at what I call the Crypt here in Los Angeles. Somehow, the Lakers blew a 19-point fourth-quarter lead. 19 and lost by one at the buzzer in Through the fourth quarter of that game, LeBron managed to score four points on two of eight shooting, missed his one three that he tried. 
he's a minus 10 and plus minus. He just disappeared. Can't. You can beat the Pacers. Up 19, you got to close that, and he couldn't. Then at Philly, you might remember the game. It's December the 9th. They ended up losing by 11 in overtime, but the Lakers went on a crazy Reggie Miller-esque tear down the stretch and put themselves in position to win. Anthony Davis did miss a couple of free throws late, but they were in position to win, but still. LeBron had nothing to do with that late close because he scored all of five points in the fourth quarter, one of three from the field, oh, one from three. And yet, when they needed LeBron to say, okay, I got you in overtime, he scored zero. They got outscored 13 to two in overtime. He was over two from the floor, oh, for one again from three. Just, you're better than that. You know it, and I know it. And there's a home game, December 13th, against the Celtics. You had them. Played the heck out of them. LeBron missed the game-winning three at the buzzer of regulation, and they lost by four in overtime. Remember the Friday night game against the Hornets, Michael Jordan's Hornets? They had them, did the Lakers. LeBron had the ball in his hands. Down two, just just drive it. Just just drive it and shoot the free. You can make those two free throws to force overtime. You can do this. And LeBron somehow weirdly ran out of his shoe. I don't know how you do that. I've never seen it like happen like that. Wasn't it tied? And wound up having to fall and kick it to Schroeder in the corner, and he missed the three to win the game. January 7th was at Sacramento. Lakers wound up winning the game by two, shootout, 136-134. Last play, go look at it on tape. I dare you to. Go pull it up. Last play, it looked like it was called for LeBron. He sets up kind of in the middle of all the defenders, and he kind of does a few moves like, oh, I'm trying to get open, and he wasn't trying to get open. He was just trying to look like he was trying to get open because he wanted no part of the basketball. And Dennis Schroeder finally ran and said, here, give me the ball. And he looped around the the formation in the middle with all the defenders. And he finally said, I got this. And he did what LeBron should have done. He drove hard on De'Aaron Fox and De'Aaron body fouled him. And Dennis Schroeder marched right to the free throw line and did something LeBron struggles with mightily. Late game, close game, free throw shooting. And Dennis Schroeder went swish, swish, game over. How about the Luka game? I'm talking about the one at home. This is January 12th. Went up one, two overtimes. In the fourth quarter and both overtimes combined, a game that Dallas was begging LeBron to win, begging him. He scored a grand total of six points in the fourth quarter and two overtimes. Two of 11 from the floor, 0 of 5 from three. Just begging for LeBron to win it. No, couldn't. He did get fouled, the NBA finally admitted. He did get fouled. All he had to do was, at that point, make one free throw, but he didn't get the call, and I'm not sure he could have made the free throw. I'd like to think he could, but I'm just not completely sure about it. Then there was the Philly game at home. Last 319 of that game, again, begging to be won by the home team. LeBron did not score. Did not score. Had one big turnover late that hurt. Finally, against Houston the other night at home. Houston, the worst team in the NBA by record, the worst team. 
LeBron finally hit a shot with 50 seconds left. He pulled up and took a jumper and glassed it, banked it. I loved it. Mid-range. It was a sweet shot. Shot it with conviction and authority. And that proved to be the difference in that game because if he had missed it, they were up two at that point. I don't know, maybe Houston goes down and scores the other end. They pulled away and won by eight, so it wasn't like a walk-off shot. But it was a big shot. I give LeBron high marks for making that shot. But down the stretch of that game, a game that he made five of ten three-pointers, a rare hot streak, down the stretch of the fourth quarter, LeBron let Houston back in the game after leading by 13 with 10 minutes left because he missed his last four three-point shots. Closing? I don't think so. I'm just trying to show you that it just keeps happening. And as much as I admire LeBron's talent, especially at age 38, I'm, I'm just trying to point out the glaringly obvious. Does anyone out there notice this but me? I, I just pointed out very obvious. I, I gave you six or seven failed to closes. But I still say LeBron James is the most protected athlete in sports, this side of maybe Aaron Rodgers, who's finally being figured out by people after these many years of me saying, hey, hey, look, look harder. Blame deflecting, finger pointing diva, Aaron Rodgers. But LeBron, no, no, nothing. He constantly makes excuses. He says he needs more help, not getting the right calls. It's always something with LeBron. And yet, I, I cannot tell why he can't close. The emperor, as in the king, has no clothes. I'm ta- not talking about C-L-O-T-H-E-S. I'm talking about has no C-L-O-S-E. None. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A quick final word for this season about Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. It has happened again. The NFL world has proclaimed, that's it. Tom Brady finally got old. This is getting ugly. It's time for poor Tom to go home and stay home. That's all I've heard for the last two, three days. I'm sorry, it is not. I'm sorry for all of you Brady haters. He's not done yet. Not after his bad team finished eight and 10. I told you a month ago, Tampa Bay's front office badly wants him back. Badly wants him back. That front office still believes that he's better than, I'm just quoting what I've been told, 99% of quarterbacks out there in the National Football League. 99%. Pro Football Focus wound up grading Brady for this whole year, the 10th best quarterback in the league. 
I also remind you that going into this year, Brady's peers in the league, the other players in this league, voted him the best player in this league, the best going into this season. So what's been a recurring theme over the last four Brady seasons? Well, we watched a pretty mediocre New England team lose Brady's last game in New England, a playoff game at home, lose it 20-13, to 13, a game that ended with Brady throwing a pick six. Remember what echoed from sea to shining sea after that game? Come on, Tom, you're 41, hang them up. It's over, this is ugly. Yet in a pandemic year, the next year, he went to, of all places, Tampa Bay, the Suckineers, who had gone 7-9 and nine the year before, and Tom Brady managed to win his seventh Super Bowl that next year. Hmm. Yet remember what happened that year during the regular season? Remember the game at Chicago on Thursday night? Remember the four-finger game when Brady lost track of the downs? I think he got concussed by Khalil Mack. He was woozy, he was wobbly, but that was an ugly night. And the Brady haters were shouting to the rooftops, go home, old man. Two, three weeks later, it was a Sunday night game at Tampa. This was New Orleans at Tampa, their arch rival who had already beaten them once that year. Tom Brady lost that game to the Saints 38-3. Do you remember that? He threw no touchdowns that night. He threw three interceptions. He had a QBR and scaled 0 to 100 of 4. Had to be one of the lowest QBRs of the year. Go home, old man. That's all I heard that week. And he wound up going to Breeze at Breeze in a playoff game and winning. And he went to Rodgers at Rodgers at Lambeau and winning. And he beat the youngest gun, the next Brady, quote-unquote, Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. I don't know how he did it, but he did all that. Then last year, as you recall, 2021 season, remember December, early December last year, Sunday night football? Remember what happened? Tom Brady lost at home to New Orleans on Sunday night football, 9 to nothing. Nothing threw for a grand total of 214 yards, no touchdowns, and a pick. Got sacked four times, nine to nothing. Go home, old man. That's all I heard. But he beat Philly in a playoff game at home. Then he somehow managed to score 24 unanswered points on the eventual champ Rams, this down in Tampa, in the next playoff game. Would have won that game, I believe, if the Bucs hadn't blown a blitz assignment and let Cooper Cup of all triple crown winning receivers run free right down the middle of the football field to catch the ball that set up a walk-off field goal. Tom Brady would have won that game if he had gotten the ball back after 24 unanswered he had scored. But from last season, he lost Gronk and he obviously lost Antonio Brown. And in the offseason, then he lost his Pro Bowl guard, Ali Marpet. He lost his center, Pro Bowl center, Ryan Jensen, to injury. He lost Alex Kappa, a premium free agent, to Cincinnati. 
This year, Donovan Smith, his left tackle, has been hurt and hapless. He has led this league in holding penalties. On the other side, the all-pro Tristan Wirfs has been hurt much of the back half of this year. This offensive line was graded 24th in pass block win rate, 24th. This team was dead last in running the football. Its receiving core was ranked 19th, no speed at all. And the defense became middle of the pack at best because it could not rush the passer without Shaq Barrett and tore his Achilles tendon against Baltimore midseason. And that defense, without a pass rush, got shredded the other night by my guy, Dak Prescott. Yet, in a late-season game for the NFC South title against a top, de- uh, sorry, top 10 defense, Carolinas, Tom Brady somehow threw for 432 yards and three touchdowns. I don't know how, but he did that. And would you believe that Monday night, as my Dallas Cowboy pass rush tired in the second half, would you believe that Tom Brady at 45 years of age threw for 255 yards just in the second half alone against my Cowboys with two touchdowns and no interceptions? And if Mike Evans, with two minutes left in the game, had caught a 51-yard bomb that did hit him on the fingertips, I thought he'd had it. I thought he would lay out for it at the goal line. He usually catches those, but he did not catch this one. If he had caught that one, would you believe that Tom Brady would have wound up this game with at least 306 yards passing in the second half? Think about that with me. 306 in the second half. You can dismiss as empty calorie, garbage time yards. He did that. And if they'd gotten the call on Chris Godwin, who's held on a two-point try on the previous touchdown to Cameron Brait, and then Mike Evans had caught that 51-yarder, and they had gone for two and made it, would you believe that would have cut an impossible deficit down to just eight points? Would you believe that Tampa would have had a decision to make? Do we onside now? Or do we go ahead and kick off and hope we can hold the Cowboys and get the ball back for Brady with 30 or 40 seconds left? You know what he can do in those circumstances. It was the longest of shots, but that's what Brady is, and that's what he does. If Mike Evans catches that 51-yarder, he throws for 306 in the second half alone. Think about that. Go home? Now, he might go elsewhere next year. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. I could see him being a Raider in Las Vegas. I could see him being a Jet in New York. I could still see him going back to Tampa if things change dramatically in Tampa. But if you give this man just a little more time with a little better offensive line, and you give him just one more speed weapon, just one more, and if you can run the football for him just a little bit because he was dead last in the league this year in play-action passes because how can you play action when you can't run a lick. Who's going to respect that? They were laughing at him. I got to tell you, I could see Tom Brady going somewhere and winning another Super Bowl easily. There's been zero decline in Tom Brady's ability to throw the football. Zero. I see zero decline. 
he will make all of you Brady haters look foolish once again. Now, I finish by maybe getting you a little readier, if possible, for Sunday's Cowboys at 49ers playoff game by flashing back on just some of my history covering Cowboys at 49ers playoff games. And these two franchises have engaged in some great ones. These games for me were the most memorable games of my life. These games were played at Candlestick Park, not the Levi Stadium where they play now in Santa Clara. This was on Candlestick Point. Creepy, muddy, fog-shrouded candlestick. I think the architect was Edgar Allan Poe, but I'm not sure about that. But did I ever experience greatness at Candlestick? The greatest moments of my sports covering and sports watching life occurred at Candlestick. Cowboys at 49ers. I'm guessing you remember the catch game. But let me tell you, that 1981 season, the Cowboys actually played a game earlier that year against San Francisco at Candlestick. That was on October 11th. I was actually that day riding in the third of the three cowboy buses on the way to Candlestick out of downtown on the freeway for a while, but the traffic was so bad, the bus driver and the lead bus took a, a back road, took, took some off-ramp back streets to the backside of Candlestick, which suddenly allowed or, or in, actually forced us to try to negotiate an extremely steep hill. And would you believe, I look up from the third bus, which was carrying mostly media and cowboy executives, first two buses were players. I look up from the third bus straight uphill, straight up into the early morning fog. And I realize we're not gonna make it up the hill. The two buses are stuck ahead of me. Everybody had to get out of all three buses. And I watched pro football players, Dallas Cowboys, have to push their buses up over the precipice of the hill. I tried to help push my bus. I'm sure I didn't do much good. Some of the players came back and helped with the pushing of my bus to get it going up over the hill. But the truth was, it dawned on me later that that was a pathetically ominous sign about what was about to happen to my Dallas Cowboys. The year before, a rookie named Joe Montana and a, a, a sort of a young coach, he wasn't young in age, but he hadn't been coaching very long, a guy named Bill Walsh, who I got to know very well later, became very close with. Those two brought their team to Dallas the year before and lost 59-7 at Old Texas Stadium. My team was America's team. My team looked down its upturned noses at teams like the San Francisco 49ers. My team did not take the 49ers seriously at all. And that day in the regular season on October 11th of 81, that bus stuck day, outside creepy old candlestick, 
Would you believe that Montana and Walsh did a 45 to 14 number on my Dallas Cowboys? It was 45, it was actually 45 to 7 before it got to 45 to 14. That loss forced my Cowboys to go back to creepy old candlestick for the NFC Championship that game, that, that year. And yet, I still thought uh, they're just better. The Cowboys will win this game, even though Roger Staubach had retired and Danny White had taken over. And even though that Cowboy team had lost the previous year's NFC Championship game at Philly to the Dick Vermeil, Ron Jaworski Eagles, went on to lose the Super Bowl to Oakland. Despite all that, I still thought the Cowboys were just better than Walsh and Montana. And was I ever wrong? That game changed everything. The torch got passed. One dynasty was launched, while the other, the visiting team dynasty, teetered and soon crumbled. That game, as you might remember, ended with Joe Montana trying to throw the ball away as he ran from Tutal Jones and my friend Dee Lewis. Joe didn't quite get enough on that ball because he was trying to throw it away, just as Brady tried to throw away his interception the other night in the game the Cowboys won at Tampa. Brady flinched. Brady ducked away, whirled away, didn't get enough on it, but that one got intercepted. In this case, Dwight Clark probably stood six foot three inches tall. He rose up into the fog and he snatched the attempted throwaway by Joe Montana. That over my other good friend, Everson Walls, then a rookie. San Francisco 28, Dallas 27. I was sitting in the front row of the press box that day and it seriously shook like we were having an earthquake. 49, excuse me, 49er fans were jumping up and down so hard that it, it had to register on the Richter scale. In those days, I often wrote about what, what I had called cowboy mystique that had been pretty much invented and fueled by Roger Staubach. In the press box that evening, the lead to my column was, cowboy mystique died a little today. Actually, it died a lot. That night, I never really got to sleep in my hotel room at the St. Francis on Union Square because 49er fans were so crazed that they just, in their cars, kept circling and circling and circling Union Square, honking and honking and honking. Maybe just to torment me. But I did return to Candlestick for another playoff game. This was January 17th of 1993. I had chosen before that season to write a book about that season because the Cowboys were a team on the verge, but I did not think they were ready to break through. But that day, the two young Dallas Cowboys with their baby triplets, Troy, Emmett, and Michael, 
broke through late in the game when the other receiver opposite Michael Irvin, Alvin Harper, took a slant route 70 yards to set up the game-winning touchdown on a play that the 49ers cornerback fittingly slipped down in his own candlestick mud. When that game ended up in the press box, I was actually waiting for the elevator to take me down to the field. They held it for the Cowboy coaches for a second, and running past me was Norv Turner. He'd been a great source for me that year for my book. I sat with him or talked to him every Saturday night or every night before every Cowboy game that year. As he ran by me, he slapped me on the back so hard that I was sore for a week from it. But that's how excited he was. Dallas 30, San Francisco 20. I could not believe what my eyes had just seen. Those baby cowboys had beaten Steve Young and Jerry Rice. And back we came to Candlestick two years later, another NFC Championship game. Jerry, as you recall, had fired Jimmy. Barry Switzer was the new coach. And right out of the box, those Dallas Cowboys fell behind 21 to nothing. Troy started the game with a pick six, and here we went. And I got to witness that day the single greatest one-on-one battle I have ever witnessed in all my history of of covering pro football. Michael Irvin versus Deion Sanders. Troy Aikman had no choice but to just keep throwing it and throwing it to Michael Irvin, single covered by the greatest cornerback ever. Michael Irvin caught 12 balls that day for 192 yards. Only a blatant, uncalled pass interference on Dion on a deep ball to Michael saved the 49ers from suffering a what, what I would call a Staubachian comeback because Roger was the comeback king. Those Niners went on to blow out the Chargers in the Super Bowl, a game the Cowboys could have, and I thought should have won, or at least been able to win. Candlestick Park. That day, when that game ended, I tiptoed through the mud toward the locker room I remember the great Nate Newton, the offensive guard and team leader, yelling at all of his teammates, remember this feeling, that soul-killing feeling of losing. And that feeling propelled next year's hell-bent Cowboys to a Super Bowl championship the last one my franchise has won in 27 years. I'm hoping last year's Cowboys still remember that feeling of getting embarrassed by the 49ers last year in that home playoff game. Remember that feeling. I'm just hoping they can return the favor this time in Santa Clara where the Niners now reside. All I know is that when these two franchises meet in the postseason, it is memorable. 
we owe them a memory. That's it for episode 49. Thanks to you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his All-Pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.